Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining me. This is another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, we are doing a um, follow-up recording on a podcast that we published earlier. Um, This is part two of our CPS, Should Parents Have Something to Fear? from CPS Reports. And so this particular podcast is focused on parents um, and their and their experiences with podcasts. One thing that I have found is, is that, believe it or not, um, this is something that is more common than you would realize, but yet it is very tricky to get parents comfortable about talking about it. So I have a few guests joining me today to talk about their experience um, with a mandatory CPS report. Um, I really strongly believe that there is power in numbers and we should be less afraid Um, of talking and sharing, because I think there's a lot to learn from these experiences and just kind of knowing what to expect and kind of how things happened and worked out. So my first person I'm going to start with is my good friend, Maria. Maria has been on several podcasts. Um, She, uh, oh my goodness, she also participated. You would, you will recognize Maria because she participated in the podcast recording on wandering and eloping um, because uh, your son, Josiah, um, your son Josiah had wandered and gave us a fright, but in the aftermath of that, um, it became CPS involved. So we wanted to just have you, maybe if you could start at the very beginning of the story, because if, um, folks haven't heard the whole story of that horrible night that he, um, got away and then we'll kind of go into then how CPS got involved and you can just walk us through their involvement. Hi. Yes. Um, so my son, Josiah, who was 13, just a little backstory on him. He's um, nonverbal, um, pretty low functioning autism, 13, um, functions at like a two-year-old level, but has a cognitive reasoning skills of a 10-year-old. So a typical night, we put him to bed like we always do, um, about 8, 8.30. Um, and we always follow suit shortly after we put him to bed, because as soon as he's awake in the morning, we are all up and moving with him. So we, it was a Saturday night, we tucked him in, said goodnight, we went to bed, um, got up the next morning to a phone call from a Spokane number, which was interesting because it was like six o'clock in the morning. It was weird, but answered it. Um, it was our local emergency room asking if we were missing somebody. And my mind automatically went to our first kiddo who was currently staying with his mom. And I'm like, no, unless you have Isaiah, cause he has severe asthma problems. So it's not uncommon for him to be in the ER. They're like, well, we have a Josiah. I'm like, no, he's in bed. Um, we put him to bed last night. I go to check his room. Lo and behold, he's not there. So we fly down to our local emergency room and here he was in the emergency room, coat on, no shoes, socks, um, eating goldfish and had a stuffed animal. So, the backstory that we got is that he was found at a local hotel about three miles from our home. He showed up there about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And they thought he was, uh, um, they thought he was staying there because he didn't have shoes on. 
they finally called 911 and um, state patrol picked him up and brought him to the local emergency room via ambulance. He became quite combative while in the ambulance. So it took quite a bit to get him down to the emergency room, but they finally did. Um, they were asking him all the right questions, but being nonverbal, he wasn't able to respond. So as the nurse in the emergency room was taking the stats, she was using a pen and writing on her glove. Well, he took the pen wrote his name and that's how they were able to find us. So they put his name into the database, guessed about his age and guessed about his diagnosis and cold called everybody. So we were actually towards the end of the lists of the Josiahs in Spokane with possible autism around his age of 13. Which is crazy. So that's that how many all of that came together. Um, it's insane that there's that many, I mean, there was that you were actually not the only one on the list. Yes, surprised. Yes. Just uh, Jennings isn't a super unpopular name, but Josiah and the combination is quite interesting to me. Um, so the nurses, when we left, they had to do a full body scan of him just to make sure there was no bruises, no incidences, um, because he would himself wouldn't allow them to look without us there, without becoming combative. So as soon as we got there, he was totally cooperative. They checked him over. His feet were fine. Because um, so... At this time, it was snow on the ground, so he had walked in snow berms to get to where he was going. Um, his socks weren't super wet. He didn't have frostbite on his feet. No bumps, no bruises, no incidences or occurrences or anything that should lead to child abuse of any sort. So they're like, yeah, we don't think this is a CPS case. This is a typical elopement, um, wandering. You guys went to sleep, you woke up, and he was gone. The state patrol that brought him in was quite grumpy, I remember. I remember him having like a weird vibe. Like he was irritated that he was there. He was ready to go home. And um, so lo and behold, he was actually the one that called CPS because we were surprised a couple days later that we did get a CPS call, which was, like I said, a surprise because we left under the impression that there wasn't going to be one. And both my husband and I are both mandated reporters. So we understand having to report and what, some of the consequences would lead to a report or some of the concerns that would lead to it. So we got a phone call from the CPS worker just saying she has to do her investigation and we were totally respectful of it. We invited her into our home and she just asked us simple questions and we have all the documentation of his elopement history and his, his IEP and all of this just to show that he's combative, that he is, um, he does have a history of elopement. He has all of these things. Um, and before CPS even came to our home, we had installed motion sensors on his door so he can hear when his door now opens and motion sensors on his windows. So in the middle of the night, we would be able to hear if he opens up his door, which wasn't in place prior to this incident. So she didn't really have any suggestions for us. Her only suggestion was to do the motion sensor. She did have to call um, references to kind of check on her parenting and check the school. So she went to our school and talked to his teacher and called our references, but it was pretty closed case. She sent us a letter within a week. Uh, I didn't feel like she was invasive. I felt like she was just doing her due diligence with her position of employment. Really respectful in our home. Didn't ever feel intimidated. Didn't ever feel threatened. Um, and I have a history of having to call CPS just based on my prior positions of employment. And it's always been said that just because you called, it doesn't assume negative intent. It's just looking out for the welfare of the child. So I took that to heart with when the state patrol called that he was just, I'm assuming, looking out for Josiah's best interest, just to make sure that everything was okay. 
So we really had a positive experience. It really was pretty smooth, pretty effortless. It was just like a caseworker coming in that we have every year for Josiah to do his DDA hours. I mean, it was just kind of another person asking us more questions. <laughs> True. And, you know, when our previous recording, um, when we were recording on the podcast of um, the wandering eloping, we actually um, interviewed uh, Lieutenant Coles with the Spokane Police Department. And one of the questions I asked him was, um, you know, wandering eloping is terrifying because obviously, you know, like, you know, you know, if you, you don't even know how long they've been gone. Any number of things can happen once they leave your house. I mean, it's terrifying. But interestingly enough, I asked him in that interview, this is before we decided to podcast on this topic. And I asked him, you know, for those families that are listening that have kids that are wandering eloping is um, when the police gets involved, is that does that automatically constitute or trigger, if you will, a CPS uh, mandated report? And believe it or not, Maria, the answer is no. Um, and he says more often than not, um, like to them, they understand they are highly trained. Um, at least Spokane police department is very, um, highly trained when it comes to disabilities. And so, um, you know, they understand, especially when you're talking about the autism population, that that is just a, a factor that is, um, a very prevalent thing that is, you know, that is present when you have a, a person, a loved one with autism, where he says that we start, where they start you know, kind of questioning is it if, if they're seeing marks or, you know, the interaction between the parents, you know, um, even he said he, he, um, was honest about, you know, even locks on doors are not necessarily even a red flag for officers anymore because they understand that you have to keep your child safe in their bedroom at night when they're sleeping. And so um, he says, you know, sure, maybe a young officer or one that doesn't have as much training as some of the other ones might be like alarmed by that. But just an automatic wandering and eloping um, for their department does not automatically constitute a mandatory report because if you are familiar with kind of what the criteria is, if you and you're a mandatory reporter, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that, Maria, I also have my husband who's sitting here. He is also a mandated reporter because he's a first responder here in Spokane. Um, it is. And even by Megan's, you know, who we interviewed in their first part, one podcast on the CPS topic it is a little bit vague. You are making, as a mandated reporter, you are making, you believe that there is abuse or neglect um, that is compromising, that's, that the child's safety is at risk. And so, um, you know, and that's where, you know, again, when you're talking about wandering and eloping, um, you know, that's a, a choice that they're making to wander and elope. It's not necessarily a neglect. Um, unfortunately for you, Maria, they didn't come to your house, right? So it's not like they brought him back to your house because they didn't know who he was. So he went down to the local emergency room. So you didn't have the benefit of the police officer bringing him back to see, oh, wow, this is a really involved family. Oh, wow. Look at all of the things that they have in place in order to support this child. So you kind of, I feel like probably why that was ended up being a report is because they didn't have the benefit of being able to come to your house to see how you live. Do you feel like that's true? Yes, I do. I feel like that's true as well as as soon as we walked in, obviously we were frightened and fretful. Um, he just really said, okay, well, I'm going to go. Like he was ready to go and seemed super annoyed. Um, so I think it was just I don't, I can't say how his shift was. I don't know, but he was just, he was ready. He was done <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. So he didn't even get a chance to interact with us at all. Um, 
to understand who we are as parents. Like we're super involved. We know what's going on. This was just, uh, he's never eloped at night ever. So we have all the precautions in place for the day, but it doesn't, you don't know you need a precaution until it's already happened. So that was the situation. Oh, totally. The other thing too, is I think it's unfortunate that he didn't have a conversation. He didn't wait and hang out and interview you to just find out like a little bit of his profile. The fact that he was a wandering, you know, he has a, he's, you know, prone to wandering and eloping. So I think it's interesting. I'm going to be honest. I'm a little appalled that as a mandated reporter, a person that has chosen, hey, I'm going to make this report because I feel like there's neglect for related to this child. It surprises me that he didn't give you the courtesy of at least sticking around and having some of those questions to you. Because when you report to CPS, it triggers a whole system, a whole process. And again, you said it was very respectful. You didn't find it to be too invasive. You're used to working systems because obviously you're, you know, DDA, all of the things, you know, IEPs, therapists in and out of the home. But it's really disappointing to me that um, as a person that is going to make a mandated report, the fact that he didn't stick around to understand or learn more about you two. Um, and a little bit more about his profile before making that, because that's a big thing that you're doing. I mean, you're going to stir up a whole lot of stuff. And when Josiah's elopement pattern first began, we went to the local state patrol office and the local police department with his ID, with his picture, with a description of his behaviors. So he's in the profile of some sort. I don't know how it, how the database works for that, but they do... I mean, his name is should be flagged at some level of being an elopement pattern for with autism. So I was really surprised because he was state patrol and there's a state patrol office right by our home that we have taken him down to. We've exposed them to him. They have records of him. Like, yes. <laughs> so he didn't even look, in my opinion, didn't take it. Once he got the name from the hospital, never implement it into any program that he might have. Yeah, sure. And like I said, this is a serious thing that you're doing. So it feels like he should have taken it at least a little step further in order to understand things a little bit more. But I mean, that's just my opinion. Um, Now I'm going to ask you another question, Maria, Um, because you are, you and your husband are both mandated reporters. And so I asked, have asked you this before, and you are one of my few, um, educators who actually has said, no, I feel like I have received good and sufficient training to understand mandated reporting. So can you, as the school, the school district particularly that you work for, does a good job at providing their educators information about what constitutes a mandatory report? So can you just explain what that looks like? Yes. So I've had um, mandated reporting through the Cheney Public School District, as well as um, I worked for a child care center in like our downtown Spokane area that uh, serviced kids that were parents were in drug and alcohol rehab classes or mandated child care so the parents can go to court cases. So we had um, quite the challenging population at that center. So we had a lot of training on neglect, abuse, what it is, what it isn't, being dirty isn't neglectful. It's not a report if the kids show up dirty. Um, we had a lot of exposure within the Cheney School District as well as what's culturally accepted and understanding the differences within cultures of how kids are presented, how kids talk to adults, just how it just differs across the board. What we might find to be neglectful isn't necessarily true with other cultures and being exposed to that, which I think 
is important. And I've kind of taken that under my wing on my own and really dove deep just to get to know our clientele better and give them the respect they deserve their families and their children. Um, Maria, does that mean between interactions between adults and children? Because I know that, is that what you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of the way that some cultures speak to adults, it wouldn't be a CPS call, but I find sometimes educators can look for things if they feel disrespected towards students. They tend to kind of be a target just from past experiences, I'm not saying sure. that's everybody by any means, but from past experiences, if you don't understand the culture, you don't understand where the family's coming from, and that could mislead in information. So I just took it upon myself to be respectful of our community that we serve, just so I can have a better understanding. Um, every year we would have our counselors at the school do a, a CPS what, what it would require, how to do a CPS report, who do you contact within the school district if you choose to file one, what the process is and how to go about it and all of that. And it was every year before school started, we had this training. Gotcha. One more question, Maria, um, out of curiosity, in these trainings that you had, were you then told that as a mandatory reporter, you are allowed that um, having a conversation with the family was allowed and encouraged? Or is that something that the school counselor would do? You see, you understand before the report was made um, in your training, was that something that was explained to you that you could or should or someone from your district should talk to the family um, to get information prior to the report? Um, I don't know that it was necessarily spoken that way, but I took it upon myself to have really good, meaningful relationships with the kids that were in my care. Um, I was an ECAP teacher for a while and relationships is number one to getting um, parents just to trust you with their kids to begin with. So I tried my hardest to have open relationships with the parents and to get to know them better. So if something were to arise, the comfort level would already be established. The relationship would already be there. So they would be more willing to answer questions should there be a concern because it wasn't caught off guard that I was talking to them because we have already established a foundation. True. So I don't know that it was necessarily brought up in the training. I'm sorry. That was what your question was, but um, I'm just a people person anyways. And I like to talk and build relationships. So I just took it upon myself. You just to do that. Did it. Yeah. 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 And I think that's true. I asked this question just because I'll get to this with my next parent that's joining me is, is that, um, I think one of the biggest challenges is that, um, unfortunately, um, it is there are mandated reporters that actually have no idea that they can and actually should um, have a conversation to, to, you know, to talk to that family to get a better understanding of to the concern of neglect or marks or potential abuse. Um, and so that was just one of my questions is that, you know, I feel you, Maria, have, when you describe some of the training that you have, I think it's phenomenal. Um, when I have asked the same question to other educators or other mandated reporters, um, believe it or not, all of them have said, we don't get any training. Um, I'm going to ask this question here to my husband after I'm done talking to our next parent, Paul. But, um, you know, they actually have first responders as the fire department. They actually have quite a bit of training, but it's really interesting to me that it's kind of all over the board. Um, you know, your school district sounds like they're phenomenal. Um, other school districts say like, we've never had any, uh, whatsoever. 
And, um, you know, even too, when you talk to some people in law enforcement, um, they don't even have real clear, defined training that any agency or organization is providing to them to give them insight in terms of what constitutes um, and how you go about doing. It. So the information is very skewed. So there are mandated reporters out there that feel like they're not allowed. Oh, we're not allowed to talk to the families about it because it's supposed to be a surprise. Actually, that's not true. Um, so if you're listening to this and you are a mandated reporter and that might be your understanding, just let me assure you that is actually not accurate information. It is, I think a lot of the CPS caseworkers, social workers would actually appreciate having some of these honest conversations because it can clear up a lot of things. Um, so I'm going to go to my next guest, Paul, who's joining me. Um, Paul, you... Um, Actually, your experience was fairly recent. It was just not too many weeks ago where your um, CPS situation started. So would you mind kind of taking us through that whole story and kind of how, like the background of how um, you guys became CPS involved with your family? Absolutely. So um, first of all, our, our daughter, Morgan, she, um, she has a dual diagnosis, as do many uh, kids with autism. She um, has a chromosomal uh, mutation that's known as Phelan McDermott syndrome. And a couple of things come along with, um, with, with that diagnosis uh, that are very important in the story. And one of them is uh, that she doesn't feel or process pain. Um, she doesn't, she, she, she also doesn't understand fear in any way, shape or form. And she also is a sensory seeker. She She's always looking to ride a bike a little faster, jump on the trampoline, jump off of things. And I always equate it to, you know, if you had a glass and you picked it up and it didn't burn your hand, you wouldn't think to put it down. And so with Morgan, that's kind of what it's like. Um, she might feel the, the heat, but it wouldn't process in the same way. So she cuts her foot. So that's important for this story. Um, so Morgan goes to ABA therapy. And uh, we had recently started probably about a month and a half before a new therapy uh, place. And they were great. And they still are great. But uh, when we did the intake, we explained to them in, in detail about her disability as well as sending all the appropriate documents. Uh, one thing with Morgan is she has a lot of bruises on her legs. Um, just from jumping in the shower, just from falling off her bike, just from playing on a trampoline, just doing kid stuff. And, you know, going down the stairs on her butt, sometimes she bruises herself. Um, in addition, and, uh, you know, kind of important as well, she, you know, her mom, um, being of Norwegian origin and having very pale, light skin, bruises very easily as well. So all these really, combined together. All of these things come together. She exactly. Kind of like mother so, and daughter have kind of that similar, just that Norwegian fair skin bruise very easily. Exactly. Um, and she's clumsy. So anyway, so um, we, you know, she was going to therapy. She has four therapists, a supervisor and a director of therapy that we assumed had understood all of her. We thought the information trickled down from her director through to everybody. So it was a Saturday, probably around noon. I was upstairs folding laundry. My daughter was down the street with her mom at, this, at her sister's house playing with her cousins. And two ladies showed up at the house, um, nice ladies, but said, hey, we're here from CPS. And it didn't even really process to me what, you know, I said, okay, well, come on in. <laughs> um, had, you know, I didn't know. I, and then they said, okay, is Morgan here? And I said, oh, no, she's at her, she's at her play with her cousins. And they said, oh, well, we should be back later today. And I said, oh, 
it's like two minutes away. Um, then we just caught up my wife and I caught her up. And so the whole gang came down, the cousins, the, the, the sister, and we're all standing there. And then they tell us that they got a report um, of potential abuse, which was completely shocking. You know, it hadn't even, we hadn't even crossed our minds. So they, um, of course, my wife's reaction was sadness and a few tears. And my reaction was, who would do this? I'm calling therapy right now. I just wanted, I just wanted it fixed. Cause I obviously knew it wasn't true. And, you know, sometimes us guys think we just get fixed. Yeah. So it's wanting to fix it. Yeah. So conversation was quick. They didn't ask to look at her legs. They, they peered around in the house. They talked to staff. We explained her disability. Morgan came up. They, you know, Morgan is, is slightly verbal, but not very much. And they asked her and she said, she's, she said her name. She said she wanted to go swimming. She, what types of things did they ask her? Hey, Morgan. Hi, Morgan. How are you? You know, Morgan, they, I think they immediately realized that her communication is very basic. You know, and yeah. she was like, you know, Morgan asked the question. She was like, what's your name? And they told the name. And then she's like, I want to go drive. And I mean, that, that was it. So and they, they left. Say, uh, Morgan, are your mommy and daddy abusing you? Like, there was no conversation about that. No, no. I, they, they, let, they handed me a card and they said, we are satisfied. So how um, long roughly were they there with you guys? Not very long. I would say, including the wait time to have Morgan come back with her mom, probably... 12 minutes. Oh, seriously? Yeah, very quick. Wow. Um, and, and they had to be a card. So if you have any questions, you can call. And that was that was the first part. And I assumed that was it. So me, though, I wanted to make sure we were good. So on Monday, about 10 a.m., after this happened on the Saturday, I called up and I said, hey, I've got this card. This happened this weekend. And they said, hold on, let me look up your social worker that's been assigned, which was a shock. I didn't even know that was, was happening. And then I got this lady on the phone who was being assigned to us. And we started talking through um, the same thing. She didn't know anything. She hadn't really got any information. She's like, I've been so busy. I haven't even looked at the case yet. But as you're on the phone, let me look. Okay. And she's immediately, and I explained to her the situation. Her focus was, we need to get you and Morgan to a doctor immediately. Um, which I was a big fan of because Morgan was at her therapy. My wife was out at a meeting and I was at home working. And she said, and this was about 2.40 in the afternoon. And she said, okay, I get you, I get you in. 3.30, you need to be downtown at 3.30. And I said, well, hold on a second. I live in Spokane Valley. I have to go pick up my daughter from therapy and try to get downtown. She's like, yeah, you know, and I, and I wanted to say, let's take it slow because I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I also felt a little trapped. I was thinking... Well, if I say no, does that like imply that I'm trying to hide something? And, you know, I called my wife. She was like, I don't know what to tell you. You just got to take this. So I called up the therapy place, jumped in my car, got her, went downtown. Uh, we, we entered this random doctor's office and quite frankly, not a nice part of town. Um, we were greeted. I filled out a little bit of paperwork. And then, which was very disturbing to me, I was told you need to go back um, and Morgan's going to stay here with us when you go back and talk to the doctor. I didn't know these people. No. I know it was a doctor's office, but that was uncomfortable. I was like, what? You know, and I said, you know, Morgan's not going to be able to really communicate very well. But I did. I went back to the doctor, asked me a number of questions, and I think immediately the doctor saw that 
you know, I was a good parent. Got the instinctual kind of feeling. Okay, this is not a, this is not, there's no signs of a parent that is of concern to us. Then um, they said, okay, now we're going to go get Morgan. And Morgan came out and I said, how did she do? And they were like, she did great. She colored, blah, blah, blah. Um, she was covered in color on her hands. They let her color all over her hands, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, that's great supervision, CPS. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so the doctor sat down. Um, I, I explained to her that Morgan's going to be limited in her communication. She asked her a couple of questions. And then they had her remove her pants, and they photographed her on this very cold-looking table, um, which was hard for me to watch. I mean, I think any parent seeing that 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 kid be photographed in a very scientific way was very hard for me. The good part is Morgan didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. Which is good, but it's also bad. It's like, yeah. hey, somebody could, you know. And they didn't do anything, which I wish they had done. Like, hey, Morgan, this is, only a doctor can do this. I wish they had done that. Like there most was no doctors, social do. story that was built into it so that she could understand yeah. what was happening. None of that. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, then the doctor said, um, she was like, listen. She was like, the bruises that they are talking about in the report are no concern at all. Clearly, they're from playing. She was like, in fact. All but one bruise is 100% all from playing. There's one bruise on her stomach that um, I will list as, you know, inconclusive. She was like, I just can't. She said, do you have any idea what that is? And I thought, and I said, I know exactly what that is. This happened on Sunday. We went to an area where she loves to do the monkey bars, but she can't, because of her muscle tone, she can't hold her weight. So I put my hands around her waist, and, and, and absorb as, as much weight as I can for her to be able to do the monkey bars. I said, I, if I put my hands on her waist, it looks like it's that. And I said, and by the way, that wasn't even there last week when she was reported. She said, I'm not concerned. She said, I'm 100% not concerned. Let me tell you, this will be over for you. And I said, that's great even though it wasn't really great because I didn't yeah. want to be there in the first place. Correct. And it's um, really great, which we're going to talk about that here too, because while be it, this one is resolved and you're moving on there's still the aftermath which we're going to talk about here in a second absolutely it definitely is is a, is a hard thing to embrace and yeah we need to talk about that later about how it's okay to talk to people but so anyway so went home um called the uh the social worker the next day i was eager to get this address and i was eager to give her whatever she needed to do it so she said okay so let's talk some more and she said i need some people to talk to so i went maybe a little overboard with the amount of information I got for her. I got two people across the street, a nurse that lives across the street from us, a sergeant that lives across the street from us that have known Morgan since she was born. I got her primary care physician. I called up and made her. I had to make an appointment over the phone. I did that. I got her on board. I got her psychiatrist. I got her school teacher. I then went even further. I got the executive director of the association, that oversees her syndrome. I actually even got the doctor who the syndrome is named after, who discovered this chromosomal deletion. I also got the head of psychiatry at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, who oversees the autism program, because he is the scientist that's doing research into working in syndrome. And I got all these people to agree to speak to the social worker. Um, in addition, I had the, the head of autism at Mount Sinai to write a letter to the association that handles the syndrome in general terms, talking about um, bruising 
And I think, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it, it was a good letter. It described how it was a very well-written letter. It talked about how it's always important to report people you think at risk, but there are other reasons why. And in this case, you need to understand that with heightened sensory seeking kind of needs, coupled with not understanding fear, coupled with not feeling pain in the same way as anybody else, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's, it's going to happen. And so that was, that was everything. So I provided all that information to her probably within like six hours. Um, subsequently, by the way, she never called one of those people, which I guess could be a good thing. But I don't know. It was pretty upsetting to me that these people were here to help and she didn't, um, she didn't, she didn't need it. So moving forward, she then said to us that she needed to schedule a bit, visit. And we said, what's the earliest you could be here? And she said, the following Monday. And we said, great. So she said, I, I will be there at, um, I think it was eight, eight o'clock. And I said, that's great. I said, because Morgan goes to therapy, uh, she has to be there at 8.30, which means she leaves at 8.15. I'm like, you can meet Morgan for 15 minutes and then my son can drive her to therapy. That'd be great. So at 8.30 that morning, and this is maybe a little bit of a dig, but it, it did frustrate me. Um, nobody was there. We hadn't heard anything. And I called the social worker. And quite frankly, she sounded like she had maybe forgotten. But she said, oh, oh, I had, I had a flat tire this morning and... You know, I'm in the office now and I got it fixed. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, if you could drive to the office and you're there at 8.15 or why did, or 8.30, why didn't you just drive fix your time and drive to us? Yeah. So she said, but I can be there in 20 minutes. And so I said, fine, you know, keep Morgan here. She's missing her therapy, but okay. So she pulled up and she was definitely a little disheveled, but, but very nice. Um, she got Morgan for 15 minutes. Morgan then went to a therapy late and we continued with, with, with the home. So she came in, she sat down. Um, sorry, moving back one second. When we had done the phone interview, she had asked us questions about Morgan being restrained. Cause I told her sometimes Morgan has moments where she'll lay down and kick and scream. And she said, has she done that recently? I said, Oh yeah, she did it in home Depot this past Sunday. It wasn't a problem. I mean, you know, I said, yeah, she had a meltdown. Um, I picked her up and she, she walked with me and it was fine. But in her mind, that was an issue. So she starts talking to us about needing training for restraining her. And I said, well, let me just clarify. The bruises have nothing to do with restraining her. They're on her legs. I don't know how you think we're restraining her, but on her legs. She's never, <laughs> yeah, we hold her up on um, her legs when we're restraining yeah, her. Yeah, like what am I, dangling her from her legs? <laughs> So, um, and then she said, okay, so tell me about the house and um, kind of what Maria said as well. It was the same thing. I'm like, listen, we've got locks on the front door that, are uh, that have a codes that are controlled by Alexa. We have an app on our phone to also be able to lock the doors. We have locks on every door in the house so we can shut off bedroom, bathroom doors, you know, other bedrooms. Um, here's the pantry. We have a special lock on the pantry. We have locks. We have a medicine cabinet. We have a lock on the outside of the cabinet. And then we have a lock on the door to the room with the medicine cabinet. And then we have a lock box inside of the medicine cabinet. We have six cameras in the house, two at the front of the house, one at the back of the house. We have locks on every window. We have a secure house. And she was desperately trying to find something. So she's like, what about it? What about a mat? 
for the, the you know a padded mat for the for the bath so when she jumps in the bath and i'm like, like what you, her lane. you know what i mean like this is not even what the issue was like it's not like she slipped yeah. in the bath because of inattentiveness like it's just well, i told her she jumps in the bath oh, but yeah. i'm like we have a we have a rubber mat the thickest one i could find because it's safety um but i don't she's like well maybe there's something that has kind of like it's like fluffy and like it's a bath. It's gonna get wet. I don't know what you're talking about, but if you can find us something, um, we also talked about DDA, which made me laugh because she's like, "Well, you know, you clearly need some services," and I was like, "Yeah," and I've been on a waiting list, and I continue to be on a waiting list. So I was like, "Can you help me?" And she's like, "Ah, not really." Um, and then she said, um, she and finally she said something which i was like telling her she said but she's like i gotta teach you something i gotta give you something just allow me to basically say i've, I've done this for you i've taught you something that's going to change yeah. your life and improve this situation and as i was doing this and you appreciate this my wife was kicking me under the table she's saying, just let her teach you something because i wanted to say there's nothing you yeah. you don't have the skill set the education or the understanding of my daughter's disability which we have lived with for eight years in a couple of days, you you don't have that ability. Um, you know that we're not parents that are causing harm to our daughter. The doctor has told you that. We have a, an abundance of witnesses that know her and have treated her from a medical and from a personal perspective. Like, just say, this, what I wanted her to say was, clearly, there's no problem here. This was incorrectly reported. Have a good day. Um, but it wasn't that end to it. It was a good end. She's like, I'm fine. It, we're done. Um, she also kept pointing out as well. She's like, this is not an investigation. It's uh, just us looking into it. Um, and my response to her was, well, you're investigating, and I'm having to provide proof that I'm not abusive to my daughter. So, yeah, I'm sorry. This well, is your this and, is an investigation. And, Paul, you had to take her in and have her photographed. That seems yeah. very investigative. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. to be honest with you, I think that's interesting because when we interviewed um, Meg, who um, is a social worker with, within the system, um, she says that is exactly what it is. It's an investigation. Um, you know, you can call it a yeah. variety of different things. Um, but at the end of the day... I think it was just... I think it was just something internally that they don't call it. Every investigation, maybe they get external people. There was a difference to her, but to me, I'm like, I don't care. You're being intrusive to my home, to my daughter. You're, you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing Morgan. You're making it hard. You know, I, but of course she didn't report. She was doing the best she could. And she wasn't a bad person at all. It was her job. She took it very seriously. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the experience. And then it really ended. That was it. She never called anybody. Um, she never followed up. That was it. We didn't even get a, you know, a, 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 anything saying, you know, and then I called her the like a few days later and said, okay, well, where are we at? And it was kind of funny. She started telling me, oh, was, like she was clearly having a bad day. She was like, I just got an intake and, you know, I'm furloughed two days a week. And, and I'm like, I wanted to say, you know, yeah, I don't need to know that. I, I, I'm sorry you're busy. Not my problem. But hey, <laughs> yeah, you just accused my daughter. You accused me of looking into seeing if I had abused phys physically my daughter. I'm sorry that you're furloughed. It was a kind of a weird, yeah, weird conversation. So, um, so you never that's kind of that got story. anything in the mail that actually said that it was resolved. Nothing. Okay. No follow up. No email. No physically mailed item. 
Um, so that was that from the CPS. I know, and I don't know if you want to do it now. Do you want to talk kind of I my... Do, I do want to, because there's a whole other side of this, because you, let's talk about um, how you... You know, obviously, when you get when you are reported to CPS, they don't just tell you, oh, here's the name of the person that filed the the you know mandated report about your child. Um, in Maria's situation, um, Maria, like, was that clear in terms of the fact that the it was the state patrolman that had filed it? Oh, so it was she's nodding. Yes. Um, so it was clear that it was on the part of Washington State Patrol. But for you, Paul, um now the question is, is that how in the hell did this even happen, correct? Exactly. I mean, obviously I knew that it was the autism therapist. She spent seven hours there a day. They told me the time. They said, all we can tell you is the time that it was reported, which was a Friday at 11 a.m. So I knew it was then. Mm-hmm. And they never, and, and thank goodness they never, they could have said we can't discuss it, we can't say it's us, but they did, they said it's us. The challenge was that both her, the director and, a, and her supervisor were out that following week. So I spoke directly with the owner, who really, I think, wasn't prepared and wasn't knowledgeable in the day-to-day operations to talk about it. And um, I think it started with a little bit of defensiveness um, that turned into a, a very much oh my gosh, like I need, you know, I, I, I need to relook at this. Um, he was trying, you know, he didn't know anything. When we would say to him, hey, listen, we had told the director and the supervisor about Morgan's disability. He couldn't answer that because he wasn't, you know, he, he, you know, he, runs, he runs the place. He doesn't have day-to-day. So I think the first call went bad. The second call, again, my wife was on and she, again, was calming me down and saying, okay, don't. It'll be crazy. And then um, he came back and said, okay, I want I want to sit down with you, my director, and the supervisor, and I want you to tell them what happens. And um, so we went, we went in. Um, her supervisor wasn't there because she actually just put in notice and we were given a new supervisor, uh, which I think they actually made it. They actually looked at who would be best for Morgan. And Morgan's got a great supervisor. But we sat down and I said, I want to tell you guys what, what it's like. And I went through the story that I just told you. And I said, you know, we have, we were embarrassed, but, we, but, but we've talked to people about this. We've done research. I even said, we're going to be doing a podcast on it. I, I said, I, I want you to understand that from my research and my understanding, there is another step that was missed here. And... Um, and it's not okay. And what was amazing was the new supervisor, and you appreciate this. She's like, well, first of all, let me tell you, I have a daughter with autism. And I'm like, oh, thank you, God. Yeah. Now you get it. And she's like, so I may be a supervisor, but I get it. I understand what it's like. So she's like, you know what I would have done? And I said, what? She said, I would have asked to meet you at a coffee shop, and we would have had a conversation. I would have said, this is what we've noticed. This is what we're feeling we might have to do. Can you talk to us about it? And if I was satisfied by your answer, that would have been it. And I, it was a, I think it was a come to Jesus moment for the owner. And it was a big relief for us to say, okay, you get it. It's yeah. not because 
because by the way, at one point, a suggestion by the um, ABA therapists were, well, you can just document everyday knee bruises and we can document knee bruises that she had. And I'm like, well, are you going to take photographs? Are you going to draw a picture? Are you going to like just list it? How are you going to send me a voice message? And that's not okay because you know what? It's hard enough to get her out of the house in the morning, get addressed and get her okay to go to therapy. I don't have time to give an examination to her every day of her legs to see if she's kind of reversed. Well, and then too, Paula, as I've said too, in the past is, is that I, I think it's becomes too, because you know, your daughter is m- more challenged and she doesn't have the language. She doesn't have the cognitive ability to understand why is it that everybody is always examining my body potentially taking Mm -hmm. pictures, documenting things. And when you think about that, the long-term ramifications for that becoming the standard practice is wiring her for not necessarily something that could become inappropriate, that she has to just accept that people are going to look at her body and inspect her and that that is becomes the, this, the normal. And, um, and so, again, when we talk about, you know, our job as parents is we have to protect them from people that have not good intentions. And I think it's very risky when that is thrown out as a suggestion, because what are you then teaching her is, is that, oh, well, I have to allow my body to be inspected. And absolutely. And it's funny you say that, because um, just last week, we went to a GI doctor with her. Um, sorry to be so gross, but she... Um, you know, the doctor had to examine her butt and she was like, you know, only mommy and daddy and a doctor could do this. That's great to say that. Now, even with Morgan, she doesn't even understand that. And so, and, and especially at Morgan's age, you know, all kids go through this at, um, you know, at some point as they get into, you know, the, the, the double digits and they're going through changes. Morgan, people examine their body. She's figuring it out. And she's not embarrassed by it. And she doesn't understand not doing that in front of other people. And now she's got somebody else taking her pants off. She she was being silly. You know, she was putting her legs up and like touching her butt. And these people, random people. Yeah. So I'm like, she does, there's no way she can understand the differential between a doctor doing it and some random guy when she's 12 years old doing Absolutely. it. because. It's, it's, it was very concerning. And it was unnecessary. That was the big thing. All of this was unnecessary. It could have been avoided by a conversation. And we could have said, hey, did you know about her syndrome? And a therapist, whoever, whichever one of her therapists decided it was a concern, would have said no. And we would have told them. And I think they would have been satisfied. Correct. That would have been it. Well, and so now, Paul, has it changed? You know, Maria pointed out when she was explaining kind of their experience with CPS, when the social worker came to the house, they had IEPs, they had document medical documentation showing that he had a history of wandering and eloping. Do you now feel like you have to have like on your phone for immediate like deployment documentation showing here's my daughter's syndrome, here's characteristics of it, here's medical records documenting that she doesn't feel pain, that she's hard on her body, that sensory wise, you know, she doesn't like, you know, perceive information from her environment. Do you have all of those things, like almost like a little booklet, like here, I'm going to hand this over because it's like a preemptive strike. Well, I mean, the thing is we already had that already. We didn't have it in a forward, but what we did have is a, we, we had, you know, her IEP talks about it. Her psychological evaluation from school talks about it. Um, We had, you know, 
we have literally, you know, what her diagnosis, what are the effects of her diagnosis? And it's one of the, the, the highest things. I mean, there's lots of things that come with her syndrome, but that it's right there. You know, we had that. And we also, and what really got me, you know, we had provided that to the ABA therapy. And that was another lesson for them as well. It's like a lot of kids with autism don't just have autism. They have some underlying condition. And a lot of them aren't diagnosed. We understand that a lot of them haven't got the genetic testing that gives them the specific chromosomal or whatever it is that causes autism. But there's many times an underlying reason why they have autism. And that can that's why that's one of the reasons why everybody is so different. Yeah. You know, it, it and that's why they have to, when when we provide that information for them, which we did, they have to read it. They have to not just put it in a file. That's, that so should be part of the In your situation, Paul, was it just a matter of like with all of the transitions of different people working with her that they hadn't become familiar with her syndrome and some of those factors? Or were they aware of it, but they were still concerned? Um, I, they weren't aware. One of the therapists told, them, told us they didn't know about it. Okay. Um, and so what I think, this is just me as a parent. This isn't any fact, but what I... Morgan has been to a couple of ABA places, and I've also known other people that work there as well. I, I believe that most ABA places are amazing, and the people at her ABA place are amazing. However, you have the you typically have a director, then you have a supervisor, and then you have a lot of people that are just starting off their journey to becoming um, licensed. And a lot of them are young um, and, and don't know how to do it. For example, and again, this is another... This is a, a poopy story, so I apologize. No, hey, um, Paul, you are in safe company here. You share all your poopy stories with us. We're good. Okay, well, this is a gross poopy story, but Morgan had an accident at school the other day, and she she um, she doesn't only poop. She only poops at home in the morning or in the you know at nighttime when she's sleeping, so she wears a diaper at nighttime. She um, she had an accident at school. She went to the toilet. She didn't quite make it, or she went to the toilet, but she tried to wipe herself. And then she gets a little embarrassed, and then she reacts, and she kicks, and she screams, and she puts it on her face, and she was, it was a big mess. So the therapist in question, had, I got a call from the supervisor. She's like, I'm going in. I got a call from, from uh, Morgan's therapist. I'm going in to help him right now. And I'm thinking... Okay, you're you're an autism therapist and you don't know how to deal with a child that's had a poopy accident. Like <laughs> and it, it, and he was great and he learned. And I spoke to him and he's like, I've learned so much. I've learned. He was like, I wasn't worried about the poop. I was worried about the, you know, just not like how to help her. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 so I realized I was like, these people are learning their trade. Yeah. And they're so mostly they're really good-hearted people because they're getting into that business, which is hard. Yeah. But a lot of them are junior. They're not, they're not in their early 20s. You know, they're just learning. And so I have to remember. So every day when I drop her off, I talk about things with Morgan. And every day when I pick her up and they say, hey, you know, for a perfect example, Morgan used to put stuff in her mouth. She stopped doing it. And then I guess she started at therapy. And so what did they do? They gave her chew toys which then encouraged her to put everything in her mouth again. So we, we regressed about a year. And I said, hey, guys, yeah, it's a great idea. You did a great job thinking of that, but let me tell you something. It's not working. You have to stop it. It's having the opposite effect. And thank goodness they were like, okay, we get it. We understand it. Yeah. So 
I realized that I can't assume that they're the experts. I have to, I have to help them become Morgan's Africa and help them understand her disability and everything she does every day. Well, and I think that is really true, Paul. And I think that is, a, I mean, that is such a gem to keep in mind is, is that oftentimes what you're saying, these are inexperienced people. And I just was asking Maria, kind of setting the stage for this. Maria has worked within like education, like school systems and as an educator for quite a while. You've worked in early childhood development for a long time. So your school district is phenomenal. So you obviously had some very purposeful training. But I don't know, Paul, if you had this conversation, did you happen to ask your clinical director how much training their um, staff receives when it comes to mandated reporting? Was that ever a conversation that you had? Um, They... They didn't avoid the question. They didn't necessarily directly answer it. They just told me that there is there is strict guidelines on what the training is. Because I was like, clearly, they need some more training. Well, and interestingly um, enough, there is not strict guidelines for what an approved training is, according to CPS. CPS will be the first one to tell you. We do not have a sanctioned um, training, if you will, on mandatory reporting, um, unfortunately, my husband, while we were sitting here, a fire has come in. And so he has to, he got called out. So I, I can't, I, this would be a great point where I would just call him in. But, you know, for his department, you know, they have social workers come in and doctors come in and actually show bruises. This is what, here's different bruises, different parts of the body, different part, you know, different phases of, um, of, you know, like healing. Um, and mm-hmm. coach them through some of that. But it's interestingly enough, wouldn't that be an amazing training, right? Because again, when Paul, you took your child and this doctor that works for CPS that they set the appointment for you to go and consult with said, none of these bruises on her legs are, these are, none of these are my concern. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, they had the one that was, you know, questionable. They asked you the question and they were satisfied with it because of the monkey bars, la, la, la. Um, but that's what's interesting is, is that, you know, John has explained is there are some great pictures and trainings that they actually show so that they can understand what these bruises and marks would look like um, when they are concerned and where they would be and how they would present. And so I think that Paul White, you know, I think it's great to have that conversation and while they didn't not answer the question. They didn't answer it because really the answer is there is, there should be, but there's not a sanctioned training that has all of these components to give people better understanding um, of what this needs to look like. And I think in an instance of a a medical clinic, a medical provider that treats um, and even a teacher, special ed teacher, where they're working specifically with kids with disabilities, boy, I really think that that's important because you don't have the benefit of being able to have an honest conversation with this child necessarily about, hey, explain to me, like, oh, you got an owie on your arm. Can you explain, you know, like, what happened? You know, like, tell me about it. We don't get, you know, we're not working in a population where generally speaking, they all have the ability to communicate that stuff. And so, Boy, I tell you what, in certain sectors, um, for certain mandated reporters, man, I really feel like there should be that type of a training. Do you feel like, Paul, they're maybe going to work on training with their, because again, exactly what you're saying, these are young people that are excited about entering this field, but clearly we know college doesn't necessarily provide them with the training. I know um, Whitworth does give some training when it comes to, you know, mandating reporting, but it's very, very small when you're talking about what the colleges are doing in terms of preparing new teachers. Um, 
did they say anything about the fact that they're going to go back and work on doing more training or was it kind of just not really? No, I think, I think they absolutely did. So one thing they did initially was, you know, they were very thankful and I felt that they were genuinely like they, they wanted to make sure we felt comfortable to go back. And that, that included them saying to us to like, you know, what, what do we need to do? What, what we want you to feel good about this. And I said at the time, I said, I think I need to have not a horrible conversation. Just, just acknowledge it with my therapist. Like just say to them, and they're like, absolutely. You can talk about anything you need to talk about with your therapist. Um, the, the new supervisor, I don't know, is amazing. And and, it, and it, the, the improvements may be partially because of the supervisor, but I'm talking like we get this daily folder now that has such good information. I mean, it's the communication is just so impressive. She's like, we need some more hours. We want to help you. How, how we're going to go to dance class and go, you know, and and, and you, we could do after hours at home. I mean, they are just like, like I'm insanely happy with them. I think it's because partially because they actually saw it through my eyes for a second. My supervisor knows what it like what it's like because she has a child with, um, with um, autism, and I think the owner and the director was like, "Oh my goodness, we really caused a major issue here for something that we're seeing that was completely irrelevant um, and unimportant, and it could have been." Questions about so yeah, I mean I'm not I'm not policing them. I'm not saying what are you doing, because I have to trust them. They have my daughter for seven hours a day. If I don't trust them, that's not a good thing. I but I genuinely and I I'm all about instinct. I believe that they acknowledged and they're working. They're doing really everything they can to make Morgan happy, to make us satisfied, and to help Morgan become the best version of herself. So. Something bad, something good happened. Yeah. No, and I think um, that that's a really. Good but I don't know about every class. Yeah. No, and we you don't always have that. You're absolutely right. So here's my question. I'm going to ask each of you. I'm going to start with Maria. Maria, do you have a fear of like the next wandering situation? Because true or not true, um, Josiah has um, attempted wandering off since um, that incident where he was picked up and taken to the hospital. Yes. Um, no, I'm not fearful of it. Um, we have so many plans in place. Um, we have his angel sense, so we kind of know what direction he's in. We have um, like our crisis emergency team among friends and family that we have a, a plan there. Um, we've had to call 911 a few times to come assist in his elopements, and they've been more than willing. Um, they've actually asked us questions. I use the term elopement when I call 911 and one of the police officers pulled me aside when he got to our home and asked what that meant because he had never heard it. So he took that as a learning opportunity for himself. So I'm not fearful about calling. Um, and when I talked to them on one of the occasions and we've only called twice, so it hasn't been multiple times, they said to call as soon as he's missing and they will come out and help. There isn't a certain amount of time that we're required to look for him beforehand. It's all hands on deck as soon as we feel. Um, he said, if we feel comfortable looking for him for a couple of minutes and then calling, do that. But there isn't like, you have to look for a certain amount of time before you call. Yeah. Um, but no, I am not fearful. I'm not. I know that 
We have everything possible in place to prevent it, but you can't prevent 100% of the time. Um, we have our neighbors, we have a phone tree, we have all of these things in place. And if there's a gap, he's going to find it. Yes. That's just the reality. <laughs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> um, and so I'm Maria, not, I'm not beautiful. The thing that is cute about this situation and we chuckle about this. Um, but the thing that I love about like Josiah is, is that well, be it, he doesn't function at his chronological age. In fact, you know, he, um, you know, functions more of a, like a preschool, um, age. Um, I think it's funny because well, be it, that's his limitation. Oh man, is he, he, if there is going to be a breach in security, he will find it. And he will leverage it. Um, and I just think that that is so funny. Just skill set. You know what I mean? Where he'll put his focus and what he will not put his focus in. So his reasoning skills out of a 10-year-old. So he has the height of a 13-year-old, this reasoning skill set of a 10-year-old, but maturity and functionality of a two-year-old. Yeah. It's a deadly combination. I mean, we're in a two-year-old fit in a 13-year-old body with 10-year-old reasoning. It's... It's a whole nother animal. Oh, amen to that. Amen to that. I'm going to ask that same question to you, Paul. Um, when we talk about um, being fearful for like for a future uh, report, how are, do you feel very confident that it's never going to happen again? Or like how how is your security level feeling about whether your run-ins with CPS are over? Um, well, it's twofold. By the way, I would say we are fearful. We are always been and always will be fearful of Morgan's um, uh, like whole pain threshold thing. It's a continuing thing, you know, and it goes from the fact that she sometimes laughs at things that should hurt her. She thinks it's funny. If she's jumping up on and landing on her knees on a bath floor and we say, oh, Morgan, oh my gosh, she's like, that's, that's, that's her kind of like drug. She's like, I want more of it. I want more of that. I want to see those reactions. She loves the reaction, right? And also we're fearful of what happens if her appendix rupture? Will she be able to, will she feel the pain? And if she can, because she tells what? And that, that scares us. You know, she's at 104 temperature and been playing around like she's 98.6. So that's the first part. Um, we're always scared. Are we scared of CPS? Yes, in a way, but it's also empowered me. Um, I've, I've, I've come the opposite of what a lot of people do. I, I'm now willing to say, to, to, to make this better, I need to talk about it. Um, I need to not be scared by somebody of authority that clearly, um, whose job is to protect people and not hurt people and who maybe needs to be educated. So that doesn't help my case or future people to try to be polite when it comes to a situation like that. It's, it's okay for me to say, that's not okay for you to report my daughter. And that's not okay for you to come into my house and, and desperately try to find something wrong when there's nothing wrong in my house. Yeah. And so I'm fearful, but I'm also empowered to say, if it happened again tomorrow, I would confidently stand up and say, you're out of your mind. And you know what? I'll go through it again, but I'm going. But I, I'm going to make sure you understand how you're wasting time and you're offending people, and it's you're not doing your job properly. Well, yeah, and because it's a waste of resources, you know. And that's the thing too is understand that CPS has a purpose, 
and they have saved and intervened on children's behalf that, you know, like to that, which I am grateful. Um, in my personal world, you know, like this is a really touchy subject for me because I listen to this and I interact with families who have been reported to CPS for just things that, you know, by providers, um, sometimes teachers, if I'm being honest, and it's so frustrating because number one, if you don't live in our shoes and you don't know what's going on at home. And of course, you know, we have to have tools and we have to have the ability to have to put our hands on our kids at times in order to, you know, save them from themselves and protect other people in our home from physical abuse. And so it does feel like we, you know, have our hands tied in some capacity. Um, but, you know, I'm really sensitive to this because while I, I have families calling me because I'm Holly with Isaac Foundation and it's the, hey, you know, CPS has gotten involved and I don't know what to do and I'm scared. And so I know of all of these situations. And then here in my personal world, um, my adopted son, Trevor, was a child that was significantly neglected, significantly neglected. And he, by the time he came to live with us, he was functionally homeless. He was couch surfing and just staying with various friends, quote unquote friends, sleeping on couches. And at no point did anyone ever do a mandatory report for neglect for that child. And so it's interesting how I just feel like in some cases it's, it's um, just so unfair where you would have this, you know, my son had lived in cars. He has been, he has lived in trap house, drug houses. And at no point, you know, without real, I mean, he stood outside and held signs asking for food and money. And at no point um, was, and he wasn't CPS involved. He wasn't in foster care when he came into my world. He came into my world because he was simply a friend of my son's. And we intervened because it, we needed to intervene. Um, and then it's like I have all of these wonderful families that I work with through the Isaac Foundation. And it just really chaps my hide, if I'm being perfectly honest, that it's just that, you know, we we have vulnerable kiddos. Um, they are hard on their body. They have behaviors. Sometimes we have, to, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I have had situations where one of my, you know, my kid, my Isaac would run away and head for a street. And if you think I'm not going to reach out and grab his arm to keep him from, you know, running out into a street, you're crazy. But then if all of a sudden that is reported as abuse because there's a mark on the inner arm, oh, I'm sorry. But like, it just seems very invasive and unfair. The system is unfair. And it feels like, you know, uh, yeah. if you... If you were a provider and you were listening to this and you're a mandated reporter, whether you're a teacher, first responder, uh, medical provider that works with kids with disabilities, um, you know, have the balls to have a conversation with that family. I feel like yeah. as parents of special needs kids, we deserve that much. Uh, I mean, do you guys agree? Well, here's the thing. I think there is one exception to that. And it's, if you truly believe, and this is what I asked the owner of the ABA place, I said, if you truly believe that my child was at risk, knowing me as a parent and seeing me hug my daughter every day and her smile and run into my arms when I pick her up and seeing that she wears nice clothes and has, I, I, when I, when I, the food I bring for her is, you know, like in, in her backpack, everything about her, whether, it, you know, you can see that she's, she's well taken care of and she's loved because she exudes the same love to me. If you believe that she was really at risk, you should report her. But I am disappointed because I don't think there's any signs of that. Um, and by the way, you made a really good point. I talked to an officer who lives across the street from me, 
who we'd had this conversation before and we re-had this conversation when this happened. And he was telling me, he's like, listen, I go into homes where I see babies in cribs that are being overrun with cockroaches. He's like, I'm not exaggerating. He's like, I come home to my wife every day and I hug my kids because of the things I see. And I'm not able to take those kids out of that situation. And a lot of the time when I call up CPS and I say to them, you guys need to investigate it. They say, well, you need to do all the legwork and look into it first. And he's, and, and it was funny. He's like, I can't believe that anybody, he's like, even looking at your address where you live, we, we just, the police wouldn't be as concerned. He was like, there's so much abuse. There's so much neglect. There's kids that are starving. These parents don't feed them. It was like, he was appalled by the fact that because of a few bruises on the leg. And you're right, it's about education. Yeah. These really people didn't know what they were doing. And we, that's why we need to talk about it. Yeah. Maria, how do you feel about that? Because you're a man, you are on both ends of this as a parent, but then also as a mandated reporter. Like, how do you feel on that? Like, do you feel like the system is slightly skewed when it comes to children with disabilities? Um, yeah, I do. I feel like being in my position in early education, especially, um, there's been a couple of times where I myself have had to call based on markings, um, even just conversations that I've had with parents leading up and um, very little has been done from what I have seen from my CPS reports that I've myself have had to call in. Um, but I know working in special ed that a lot of the parents are fearful of CPS. They're like, my daughter has a mark on her because she ran out in the road. Like I legitimately was keeping her safe and now I'm fearful. Yes. Um, we have parents that basically live in isolation. They don't go into the community because they're fearful of what their child may do and how they have to discipline them for safety. Pure, 100% parent trained through agencies safety and they're concerned. So there's a lot of parents living in isolation. There's a lot of kids living in isolation because they're fearful of CPS. Because if their kids get taken away, where are they going to go? Who are they going to be with? If we as parents can't provide the best adequate care for our kids. How is somebody in foster care who has no history or background with our kid going to do a better job? Oh, absolutely. It's scary. I've talked to so many parents who are so afraid to leave their house with their kids. Oh, I completely agree. I think too, um, to you know, piggyback on that, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's hard because part of that element, and, and actually, Maria, you probably are a good one to even attest to this because your husband works in adult, um, with adults with disabilities, but a certain element of, um, of when, you know, these environments where, you know, for adult living is there's a certain amount of community involvement where they have to take them out to engage in the community. And what's interesting about that too, is it's so hard because, you know, in special needs world, we have to be a hundred percent consistent a hundred percent of the time, because that's how we extinguish behaviors. That's how we set the expectation of, nope, if A happens, then B is what, you know, like we have to be a hundred percent consistent a hundred percent of the time. And the problem then is, is that exactly what you're saying, Maria, now, all of a sudden, you're taking these kiddos into public, but because we can't then, you know, we have to respond a different way because, God forbid, you know, there's cameras on every corner and every person's pocket and every person's hands. And then, of course, it just takes a few people to take videos of something that they don't understand. And then it becomes a viral thing or it gets turned in. And 
it's very vulnerable. You feel very vulnerable because, you know, it's hard enough to not feel judged just in general going out when you have a child that has behaviors. But, you know, really, why then take them out of the home if you can't be 100% consistent 100% of the time? And they know that because, again, we've already talked about like Josiah, he's not, you know, his reasoning when he is motivated and he recognizes that you're going to, you know, the response is going to be different when we're in public than what would normally happen at home. So it's very, very hard. Yeah, we had a situation quite similar to what we're talking about. In fact, it was right when COVID had started and the masks were mandatory. And Josiah was extremely fearful at first of the masks. So I was trying to take him to his grocery store. It was a preferred time. I know the volume is low. Like everything was set up for success. It's one that we go to all the time. The one that doesn't have any triggers for him necessarily. He got to the front door and froze. And he is taller than I am. And I am by myself. And I'm like, okay, well. You got to stand up. You got to stand up. And it got to the point where I had to basically one person escort him to stand him up because he was literally in front of the doors and people were watching, but you know, you put a smile on your face and you have this tone in your voice. I'm like, okay, I need you to stand up. So I'm walking him to the car and people were watching and you know, it's in your back of your mind, but he will bolt in this parking lot. Like I have to hold on to his arm in a train. I've been trained. So I'm doing it as I'm trained to get him at least into the car. Now in the car, he's kicking and he's screaming and he's yelling and he's hollering and I'm sitting in the driver's seat and people are watching and I'm like, okay, I know that I've done everything by the book. I know that nothing is wrong, but in the back of my head, it's like, okay, I'm expecting a call or somebody gonna call or somebody gonna question me, but it's, I had to, it was a safety, it was for his safety. Well, and too, another element of, um, for you guys too, is you're waiting for someone to call in domestic violence. Um, and there's something tussle going on in this car. So you're waiting for, you know, Mr. Johnny law to show up. And of course too, in your guys' situation, your, your, your kids, I mean, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, your kids, you are a, a white woman and your children are, are mixed race. So, um, how yeah. does that play? And I'm going to be honest. That is always, not only do we have the disability card, but we have the race card and I hate playing either one, but that's the truth. And that's our reality where if Josiah is acting up, he's a 13 year old African-American male. Is he going to be given grace yeah. for his autism or is he going to be assumed because of his race? Um, and I've, we've never ran into that. We don't have a history of that, but it is possible in our world. And that's not always easy to say, but it's our reality. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so that just makes it, I would imagine even more, um, anxiety driven because it's like, you just, you're on constant high alert, which is just unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I just, you know, overall, I just feel like, you know, we just, once again, life, life is hard enough for us parents. And now we have to basically, we're, you know, then, also handcuffed to a certain degree and held to this ridiculous expectation. Um, and it's just, it's really hard. And I just feel like it's, it's fairly discriminatory. Um, would Paul and, and Maria, I'm going to ask Paul first, do you feel like there needs to be some modifications or some sort of secondary um, system for like man- mandated report looks like this, but when the child has a disability, here's your second um, like list criteria, like kind of screening um, for how, you know, for a mandated reporter to like assess a situation? Yeah, but I also, I also think that there needs to be better training or 
from the actual social workers from the CPS side, I feel that um, somebody made a point. Like somebody said to me, you know, it's not the mandatory reporter's job to ascertain. They don't have the skill set, right? Even with training. But a social worker or an intake person from, from the CPS should have so much skill that they should feel comfortable to say, there's not a problem here, like immediately. Like the, as far as I'm concerned, the moment the doctor said to my social worker for this case, there is not a problem here, that should have been it. Yeah. I mean, you have a qualified doctor that said, I am not concerned at all. She wasn't like, I'm on the fence. She was like, I'm not concerned. This is not physical abuse in any way, right? That should be it. And so I, I feel that this should not be the opportunity if a social worker is overzealous and kind of enjoys the change. Or, and I, this is me just making random comments. Maybe she was sick of going to really crazy houses. She was like, well, this is a nice house with a nice couple when they offered me coffee. And... Um, I'm going to hang out here for a couple of hours because I would rather be here than in some trailer where um, I'm trying to deal with somebody that's getting aggressive with me. So I think that the, the, there needs to be training all around and there needs to be maybe even changes in legislation to say social workers, you're, you, you, you're not rewarded by being thorough you're worried about making the right decision yeah. like good job on saying this isn't an issue i agree and what's interesting is um there it became legislation in the state of washington that requires all first responders to have mandatory disability training and so john and i both sat on the state committee to determine what that disability training would look like and that's what's so interesting to me about this whole thing is, is that while B, there is there is legislation in place um, that is spe specifically for disability training. And believe me, there was a lot of hours involved in that committee determining, um, you know, all the different disabilities and what the key pieces of information that first responders and it's mandatory. It is mandatory. It is shocking to me that we can't have some legislation in place when it comes to mandated reporting so that it is very clear um, in terms, you know, and again, a state sanctioned uh, training in terms of we want all mandated reporters, every single one of them has to have this and it gets checked. You know, you only have to do it once in your career, but it needs it needs to be done. Like if we can mandate that for first responders, I don't have any I just it, I can't wrap in my mind how we do not have that same requirement when it comes to um, standards and expectations for, you know, training and education for people that have this particular position, whether it be a social worker for CPS or whether it is a person that's deemed a mandated reporter. So um, how about you, Maria? Same question. Um, you know, I've always felt like since being a special in special ed and special ed parent, there really needs to be a separate category within CPS. There needs, you know, in school, there's special education and gender ed. It needs to be broken up almost the same way with specialized training in disabilities and specialized um, understanding that some disabilities present themselves in poor nutrition. It's just sensory input or whatever the case may be. Sure. Um, so there needs to be specialized training with with kids with special diagnoses. So that way when a call comes in, it can get filtered into the correct category. I think that would save a lot of the problems. I, I think a lot of the parents that might get called in with special ed kids 
uh, themselves don't have this, the skill set that they need that CPS could offer them. They could offer them the resources that you and I know of, but there's many out there who don't have that ability, especially young parents who aren't in the school district yet, who don't have access to resources, to, who don't have access to materials, who don't have access to their community. They don't feel welcome in their community. They don't have a way to get into their community. I think it would just be such a helpful subcategory of CPS to offer a safe place for our families to go who truly need it. Because I've seen kids that have disabilities that have been reported for CPS for legit reasons, yeah. but it's because parents legitimately don't know better. They don't have the training. And I feel like some of those kids get removed from homes without allowing the parents a chance to be successful with their kids. Oh, I completely agree. And to piggyback on that, um, you know, Isaac Foundation is involved in, you know, we oftentimes, like Maria, in your particular case, when Josiah wandered, um, bless your heart, you gave my name as one of your referrals, like your references for the CPS. And I just to let you know, CPS did contact me because they wanted to talk to me. So they did reach out. I called them back. And what's funny is they never called me back after that. Like they just considered the case resolved and they were like, nope, we're good. Check, check. Um, But the thing is, is that, you know, I am involved in other situations where there is some poor parenting of our kiddos with disabilities. And so CPS has reached out and because we do parent training, you know, uh, parents crash course to understanding autism. And so believe it or not, CPS actually has paid um, the registration fee for some of these families who have kids with autism to take this class, the parents crash course to understanding autism, because you're absolutely right. Um, You know, CPS, you know, there are these instances where they were unfounded. It was an unfounded situation and very unfortunate, like for, um, you know, Elijah and uh, or Elijah, Josiah and um, and Morgan. But we do realistic. I do have to intervene in other situations where families were just overwhelmed and they didn't have the skill set. They don't know how to appropriately, um, you know, like discipline their child. They don't understand why, you know, you can't beat the autism out of your child, so to speak. Um, and believe me, believe me, I have gotten frustrated. Uh, we live in a world where it is frustrating and, you know, like it, it's hard to not lose your cool. Um, but that's the whole thing is, is that parent training. And so again, um, it was really nice though, that um, actually, in all fair, in all you know, acknowledgement, this family went went online and was googling like autism parent trainings, and Isaac Foundation's training popped up, and so then she presented it to um, her social worker, and the social worker reached out and said, "Hey, we knew we had a parent who was interested in taking this class. Here's the deal. Here's what we would need you to do once she's done with the class." And it was really great because actually now it's a resource, so the social workers know that that is actually a tool for some of these families that just need more. But again, they didn't even know it was out there. It was this parent that stumbled upon it by just Google researching because she's desperate and she wants to get her child back. Um, So I think you're right. I think you guys have some really great, um, excellent points. Um, Before we wrap it up, I was going to interview my husband, John. But as I mentioned, he... um, unfortunately is a fireman by trade and there was a fire that just came in so he just got paged out so i will tag his interview on to the ending of this so actually this one's pretty chocked full so i might just do a part three and just have it be because believe it or not john and i have both had situations where um we had uh 
you know, a, a mandated reporter slash CPS um, for both of our kids, actually. So we'll talk about that and then just talk about some of the training um, that John has um, when it comes to him just doing his job as a firefighter, because uh, I do think it's interesting. Um, did I cover everything? Or is there any final points um, that you final thoughts you guys want to leave our listeners with, Paul? I would say the biggest takeaway was, even though it's scary, even though it's embarrassing, even though your first reaction is to scream and shout and be defensive, the best thing is to be precise, to um, to work your way through it, but then also feel comfortable in knowing when you're, it shows that you are not to blame that to, to talk about it with people, to communicate it with friends, colleagues, anybody that's listening. Because as you mentioned, you know, what's the new expression? What do they call the expression of the word? It's, it's a big thing right now, the person that always complains. You're, they say you're a- A Karen. You're a Karen. There's plenty of Karens out there, right? That are going to see you in a parking lot, picking up your kid and I'm gonna talk to CPS. I'm gonna call, I used to work with a child, parent whose child had autism and, and and there's always going to be that so you cannot be scared or you have to do your best not to be scared and stand up because it's going to help other people the only way we can change people's perception and understanding is to when something's wrong is to call it out and and, and not be embarrassed I yeah, agree. Be, There's power in numbers. Did you feel very supported by your tribe when this will happen? Because you guys were very honest and you um, were, you know, you you shared with your community, your friends and family what had happened. Did you feel supported and um, empowered by the support that you got when you guys were open and sharing your, uh, your situation with CPS? I, I did. I mean, it grew. So I dipped my toes in the water by telling a couple of people. And their reaction was like, oh my gosh, like Morgan has a wonderful life. You as parents love her. And then I would dip it in a little bit more. You know, give, my circle would go from family to friends to colleagues um, to random people that you didn't even know my daughter. And I was telling my story. And um, as I got more and more comfortable and realizing that people, people were looking for the best in me and they weren't criticizing or judging. And they were like, what do you need? How can I help? Um, it was very empowering. It was very, and by the end, I mean, I'd tell the guy that picked up my trash. <laughs> it, it, I mean, I would tell anybody at this point, I'm not embarrassed. In fact, I'm, I'm proud that I stood up to make sure that, that I could go into the people that accused us and face them head on and say, here's the deal. And it was a good and, um, outcome at the end. It was a good opportunity, learning opportunity for them. So you had, you know, a honest, it wasn't easy. We had an honest conversation. Good things came out of it. Um, you have kind of a plan moving forward. So while be it, it sucked. There are some good things that came out of it. So I'm through the other end and I'm better now, but I still feel in my gut, as I'm sure Maria does and everybody that moment when you're in it that you are like you have that moment where is everybody looking at me i am a bad person and there's also as you start to go online and do research you realize there are situations where incredible parents have lost their kids for eight months um and i can't even imagine even saying those words the idea of morgan not having us 
for uh, a week scares me. I can't even imagine. I mean, I cannot imagine, as with any parent, having your child yanked away from you for eight months. But when you have a child who you know has so many unique needs that only the parents really know how to take care of their needs and give them the best life. I mean, it, that's the, that's the one scary thing. Yeah. Cause it does happen. Good parents lose their kids for long periods of time. Yeah. Because of wrong, bad reporting. What about you, Maria? Do you have any um, final thoughts? Um, I guess we just approached it as we would approach any other meeting. Um, we're, I have this weird complex where everybody loses their title at my door. Like when you enter my home, you're a guest in my home. I don't care what your title is. And I will treat you as if I would treat anybody else. So when the CPS worker came in, I just treated her like she was a part of my friend tribe, honestly. Um, and I, I, but we're also super organized. We had all the documentation. We had all the information. Like I wasn't fearful because I had, I knew that I had nothing to be fearful about. Um, I know that just because a CPS call was made doesn't make it a mandatory removal. Like there's investigations and there's a lot that goes into it. And I wasn't fearful. I'm like, if you felt it necessary, make a phone call, but I'm going to show you why it's not. Um, and I don't know if that's just because my exposure has been on both sides mm -hmm. where I feel comfortable on both sides. I feel comfortable calling when necessary. And I feel comfortable on the other side of the table if necessary. Um, because I legitimately know that there's going to be no finding. And if there is illegit findings, like findings that weren't really there, I know how to advocate to yeah. say, nope, we're not going down this road. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, no, but I'm not fearful of much. I think after everything we've been through and everything, you just know it's going to pass. Yeah. It's just another curve. It's just another bump you get so fearful of everything that eventually you get numb to it all. I think is honestly oh, what that is. is a really good point. I think you're absolutely right. That's yeah. Really so no, I wasn't fearful. I'm not fearful about it again. Um, in fact, I'm almost anticipating it as he gets older because he is getting louder. He is getting violent. He is making more of a scene in public. Yeah. Um, not that I'm saying that we're causing it. It's just community reaction. I'm not surprised. Because I know my kid. I know his behaviors. I I had to pull over on the side of a country road and basically do a one-person restraint because he was throwing things in my car. He was opening the doors of the car as I was driving and I was by myself. There was a farmer in the field watching. I'm like, you can call if you want. Like, yeah, go ahead. Maybe somebody else can come and help me. Like, yeah. I get, I'm, just, I'm just not fearful. I'm just not. But it's 13 years of it. Yeah. Well, and, and I think too, you know, um, powered by numbers, Paul, I think you're absolutely right. Um, don't be afraid to talk about it. Maria, you are so wonderful and that you share, um, actually you shared a lot of this story even on social media and it actually had kind of a viral effect where a lot of people were sharing and, um, you know, really, you know, just supporting you guys. And so I, I think, you know, power by numbers, don't be afraid to talk about it. it I think, um, you know, the more we band together, the more like we more likely we are to be able to change and improve a system that clearly needs some adjusting. Well, and that's and that's one of the points I think that and, and I, I agree with Maria in many ways that, you know, when you're confident and you know you're doing the best you can, there's a certain certain part of you that feels 
comfortable in knowing that if somebody questions you and your child potentially could get out of the car in a moving car and you are deciding, deciding whatever you're deciding to keep your child safe until you get home or God forbid a cop pulls you over because they're not wearing a seatbelt and you're like, listen, I'm trying to do my best, but I, you know, I can't get my son or daughter to keep on a seatbelt. But the one thing that does scare me, and I believe it probably doesn't scare a lot of people until it happens is when I've read about people that have done everything right, but they have got somebody who is not a good social worker um, that have made a poor decision. And later on, it's been proven that they were good people. And I think a lot of the time you're like, it's easy to say, well, that's not going to happen to me because nobody could ever accuse me of being um, a bad parent to a child with a disability, but it could. I mean, it very easily, if you get somebody who is in a bad mood or somebody who is just, you know, has that, they want to catch the bad guy, it's very easy. I mean, there's plenty of people that get arrested that shouldn't be arrested. There's plenty of people that lose jobs that shouldn't lose jobs. People make bad choices and make bad um, evaluations of people every day. So I don't want Morgan to be, to be accused of any, I don't want Morgan to be in a, put in a situation because somebody, even short-term, says, oh, I don't know, I don't trust you as a parent. Well, and Paul, I think that to validate what you're saying is, is that even when I interviewed Meg, who has worked within, as a social worker within Child Protective Services in the state of Washington, she has admitted that there's great social workers that work within CPS, but also there are those that are on a witch hunt and they are tainted because of just, you know, poor experiences, um, bad outcomes, that one child that they couldn't, didn't intervene with and the child ended up, you know, being, you know, like losing their life, that they become tainted and they become on a witch hunt. And so you're absolutely right. Like if you understand that those, you know, it, it, I'm acknowledging that you do have the occasional situation where, you know, their past affects their present and how they're viewing the world and every case that comes across their desk. So I think it's a concern, but by and large, and it's like the same, it's the same as, you know, it's like a teacher. I mean, teachers are the perfect example. We all look back over our own childhoods and our kids, regular, typically developing kids and kids with disabilities and say, that teacher was great. She got my child, but oh my gosh, the year before. And, and, and that's the whole thing. You can, you can assume that somebody in an official government position you can't assume because there's plenty of people that have been doing it for 30 years and they're burned out and they're bitter and they don't want to they just they just hate their jobs and that's the reality that person you better watch because they you say one wrong thing or you make them you know you, you kind of put them in their place and they may take that as okay let's Let's, let's see what I can do to make this person's life harder, right? There's, there's bad people everywhere. Yeah, it's so true. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I really appreciate it. Believe it or not, if you're listening to this podcast, this is actually a re-recording because we actually, the first version of it was so, we couldn't, um, we just had a lot of technical difficulties. And here's the nice thing about it, you guys. I think this one has ended up, we get, got a lot of fantastic content. And so I actually, I'm so glad that the first one didn't work out and I got the opportunity to talk to you guys again because I'm more on my game this time and we had far less technical difficulties. So thank you for, I, I feel like it was more like three and a half hours of um, joining me, but I just want you guys to know this is a lot of really good content. Um, I know that it's going to be helpful for a lot of the people that are listening. Um, I'm going to put my contact information um, in this particular podcast in the event. 
um, you're listening and you have questions or you want um, even have a question for our guest, Meg, who is a social worker. She can't um, speak to specifics, but she can just explain certain systems within child protection, protective services um, and kind of what should be happening. Doesn't necessarily mean just listening to you guys and describing your situation. Um, it sounds like um, even caseworker to caseworker, it's a little bit different. Um, so anyway, I, I will put my contact information. Again, we do a parent's uh, crash course to understanding autism. So if you are CPS involved um, and you're working to get your kids back, that might be a nice option for you. Um, because again, we've done it and provide certificates of completion for other families so that they can better understand autism. But um, anyway, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up this podcast I'm going to record an episode with, we'll do a part three, CPS part three with John, because I think, you know, he's been on the CPS end of it as a first responder reporting, and he can talk about some of the training that they received, but he also had a situation with his son Cooper when he was young and um, when they had to take him to the emergency room. So we'll talk about that um, next time in part three. So we'll go ahead and end here and thank you guys again for joining me and thank you all for listening. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.